Hello and welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Tom Bassam. I'm your host this week, George Breer, just taking a little holiday after last week's Sports Pro Live. But I'm very lucky to be joined by Sports Pro Features Editor, Sam Karp. Hello, Sam. Hey, Tom. Not as lucky as I am to be here. Um, how are you doing? How's your bank holiday? Doing anything fun? Uh, I played golf badly. I watched Brighton win 6-0. And yesterday I... Went to the Internal Waterways Association's annual event, I guess, which is in uh, Little Venice in London, where basically lots of canal boats dotted around and uh, the sort of village fate style activities. What about you? Delightful. Um, yeah, not quite as a, not quite as a packed agenda as that. I had a couple of birthdays, including my grand's birthday, which was nice. Happy birthday, Granny Carp. Yeah, that's uh, that's what I said actually as well. Funnily enough, um, and played football for the first time in about fifteen months yesterday. So muscles are hurting today that I'd kind of forgotten I had. So thankfully, we're we're sitting down for this podcast, so the pain isn't too noticeable. Well, I'll try and work out some of your. Uh previously untapped podcast muscles too and see if we can get you feeling sufficiently worn out by the end of this let's start then with a really nice positive story actually so over the weekend uh, we saw record attendances for a couple of women's sports events firstly the the women's six nations the Le crunch at twickenham record attendance for a women's rugby union match and then yesterday we saw i think it's a women's football record in the uk for arsenal who hosted Wolfsburg in the second leg of their semi-final of their Champions League game. Both kind of really, really impressive numbers. More than 60,000 at the Emirates. Unfortunately, the Arsenal fans left slightly disappointed by a, a late winner in the second half of extra time for Wolfsburg. But the 58,000 who watched the finale of the Women's Six Nations, the 2023 Women's Six Nations, were treated to a much more positive outcome with England sealing another title in that. Being the Sports Radio podcast, we don't have to focus too much about what happened on the pitch, Sam. But still, I think another latest and impressive high when it comes to the growth in women's sports, something we, we talk about quite a lot. I think for, for our purpose, it'd be quite interesting to kind of dive into some of those reasons. I don't know if you'd had a chance to look into this at all. Yeah, I think um, pretty cool as well just to point out that I guess these weren't just the biggest women's sport attendances in London this weekend. They were the biggest sports event attendances across all sporting events taking place in London. Always worth pointing out, I think, as well. And I think, like, just even just anecdotally speaking, from this weekend, like, I opened my Instagram this morning, as I as is my want to start the week. Um, and something I think it was like four of the first five Instagram stories I saw were people at the Emirates yesterday and on Bank Holiday Monday. And I was speaking to my brother's partner on Sunday, and she'd been at Twickenham the day before for the England versus France Six Nations game. And like, I know for a fact that these are people who weren't spending money on women's sports events like four or five years ago. And I'm sure like you, Tom, and lots of other people listening to this podcast will have similar stories of people you know who have increasingly been kind of going to women's sports events because they're being better advertised because the tickets are cheaper which is something that i'll come on to in a minute and just because it's starting to establish itself as a good day out especially on like a bank holiday like we've just had like it's something for people to do and it's elite sport it's a really good experience so i think we're sort of seeing that more and more just sort of on that almost anecdotal level you're just seeing these women's sports events appear in more and more places and i mentioned it before i think you know, one of the big reasons for it is that it is more affordable. That was sort of one of the big reasons that the 
women's euros were such a success last summer here is because tickets for families were really affordable it gave an opportunity for people who maybe wouldn't want to take their children to a men's football fixture an opportunity to go to a big event and so the arsenal tickets on monday were 12 pounds for adults six pounds for concessions it was 35 pounds for club level tickets which is the premium seating which even that isn't expensive you think about how much those seats would cost for a men's premier league game it's just it's another sort of more affordable way of being able to watch a game in a, in a more premium environment and so you kind of have to remember that Arsenal season tickets for the men's side are some of the most expensive in the Premier League. They cost more than a thousand pounds and there's a huge waiting list to even buy one. So for a lot of Arsenal supporters, this is kind of one of their best opportunities now to watch a game in the stadium and support the club by supporting the women's team. And you could probably apply that across a lot of Premier League teams now. You know, there's a lot of fans who want to go to the men's games but can't either because tickets are sold out, because tickets are too expensive. But because the women's teams are now being given this platform, not as, perhaps not as often still as they should be, but on certain occasions, it is another opportunity for them to go to the stadium to watch a live football game there. And we saw a similar thing at Twickenham, which, you know, we know how expensive games there are now for the Six Nations. You could be spending hundreds and hundreds of pounds, you know, on your ticket, on getting to the ground, on beers and food once you're there. Whereas for the game on Saturday, I think it was £20 early bird ticket for adults, £5 for children. It also helps that the Women's Six Nations now has its standalone slot in the calendar, which enables the RFU to do something like this. And I think like what was really important this weekend with these records that were being broken is that people are actually paying money for these tickets now. You know, I alluded to it before and that, you know, we all know people now who are spending money on women's sport that weren't doing so a few years ago. I think when we were seeing these record-breaking attendances not that long ago, there were people who were saying, oh yeah, well, a lot of those tickets were given away. These tickets weren't being given away. People were happy to part with their money to go to these games. The tickets might not have been the most expensive, but the more that this happens, the more that people see these full stadiums, see that both games are really, really entertaining, see that the product is really, really good, the demand's going to increase, which means that these teams are going to be able to increase those prices as well. And it's just more new money, more new audiences coming into women's sport, which can only be a really positive thing. I think it's also worth kind of talking about them separately, right? In doing my research for this, there was a really interesting piece in The Telegraph. I think the, the report must have been speaking to a, some attendees. And it's like, this isn't a game where it's just loads of blokes who've been on the biz since 6am and they aren't showing off about who has the biggest cock. This is family-friendly audiences. Like you're not eating into that existing market because it's so different. And the pricing, yeah, I think it's important to note. But the other thing is as well, like, as you said, that these aren't just tacked on to the men's games i think when previously the tournaments sort of ran alongside each other the men's and the women's six nations you get kind of big-ish gates for the women's games but it was like a sort of opening act for the men's game and you couldn't really be sure how many people were there to watch the women's game compared to how many people were there to watch the men's game whereas this you know like this is your this is your audience and that means as a business you can one track who these people are sell to them better sell to them again uh, just on a sort of like really like micro marketing level, you can do things at women's games with more family focused audiences that you couldn't do at the men's games. Like the Sugar Babies performed at half time. That's not happening at the men's Six Nations. The men's Six Nations probably wouldn't want it to. But at the same time, it just, you can do slightly different things because you're selling a slightly different product. On the Arsenal side, and it's really interesting, I think that these both happened on the same weekend and drew big audiences for different sports in the same city is that you're like it says okay all right well we've this happened on monday and this happened on the next i wonder how many people from those 
went to both of those events. Probably not that many. But for Arsenal, it kind of continues for me what seems to have been like a kind of a very thought out approach to getting to this point. So Arsenal announced at the start of the season that all of their Women's Champions League games, all their home games are going to be held at the Emirates. And they didn't actually get massive audiences for the for the group stage, even though they played Leon. I think that I think the top crowd was just past seven thousand. But in the quarterfinal, they got twenty one thousand, and then they set the goal of okay, how do we sell out? And they went and did it. That takes a lot of effort, but it also wouldn't have happened without you getting the six thousands, the seven thousands, and the twenty one thousands for the previous games. You have to start somewhere, and I think that was always going to be the challenge after Lioness's victory in the summer was to. How do we continue that narrative? And Arsenal have been one of the most successful at doing that. Also should be noted, and this is something I spotted from uh, Carlo DeMarcus's Twitter. So thank you, Carlo. He'd screenshotted a couple of times the live audience figures on the Zone's YouTube channel for this. And there was 192,000 he saw as a peak towards the end of the game, which doesn't sound massive when we talk about some of the audiences getting into the millions, but this is just people watching on YouTube. Like that doesn't take into account people watching on the Zone. And that doesn't always take into account like, the game being shown in other places too. So that's just the, the people that have tuned in. In terms of getting the overall audience size, you don't know. You, the measurement on that is markedly different to how you'd measure a TV audience. So it goes to show that if you put the effort into creating that narrative and building up a property, that does reap rewards. And it's a shame really that it's taken such a long time to get to this point. But I think it's really good for the momentum of all of women's sport, but also individually those two properties to be able to kind of push that too. I think for, just to just move the conversation on, on slightly, for the Women's Six Nations, we've got the Women's World Cup final at Twickenham in 2025. And there's now going to be a concerted push to break this record again, to get that gate at Twickenham as high as possible. That will probably be slightly dependent on whether or not England get there, but that's, uh, yeah, that's sort of a big part of that too. A lot of really good points there. Just in terms of that, I think like I think Arsenal and also what the RFU did around this Six Nations game, I think both of them can kind of be used as case studies in a way in terms of how other clubs and rights holders can kind of approach this kind of thing because you alluded to it there, you said about Arsenal announcing before the season. They they actually announced in I had a look, it was May twenty twenty two when they announced that they were gonna have at least six of the women's games at, at the Emirates this season. So that's even before we had that post Euros popularity boom and kind of those questions about how we're going to capitalize on it but you know sort of committing to that early obviously gave them a really big runway in terms of how they were going to market it how they were going to capitalize on it how they were going to drum up excitement and even just those things I was talking about you know you mentioned those 6,000 and 7,000 at those early games being there still being really important and I, and I talked at the start about seeing things on my Instagram story you know in a weird way that's marketing isn't it people posting those Instagram stories you increasingly look at social media posts if you look at them out of context you wouldn't have known yesterday whether that was a men's or women's game because the stadium was so full either way like people are looking at that and thinking okay that's sort of creating a FOMO feeling right that's creating a sort of sense that these events are things that people have to be at and then another thing Arsenal have done just it's a small thing but it's kind of probably quite an important thing and that they've not just been publishing like you know ticket sales milestones only on their women's social media accounts they've been posting on the main social media account widening the reach for it making sure that like all fans are aware that this event is happening and just really making sure that as many people know as possible and just making sure they're getting as many people through the door as they can and i, th- I think the still the challenge obviously is going to be the fact that we always talk about 
weekends like this, um, occasions like this, when you have the nice big shiny number, and then next week, what's the attendance going to be at the Arsenal women's game next week? The fact is they don't play in the main stadium every week, but I think seeing what's happened this weekend, both with Arsenal and with England versus France, other clubs, other sort of tournament organisers, governing bodies are going to be looking at that and thinking, how can we actually get more of these games into these stadiums because ultimately it's a revenue opportunity right as well it's an opportunity not just to get people through the gate it's an opportunity to have people spending more time on site at their stadium and it's more fans for them to potentially engage with further down the line so weekends like this just further i guess state the business case for putting the women on the main stage in these big stadiums and hopefully it kind of continues and a lot more clubs start to do it more often yeah i I think that last point is actually really important because potentially next season arsenal might not be in the the Women's Champions League. They're currently fourth, which has them missing out. They've played a game more than Chelsea, but even if they were to win all of their games in hand, it would be very tight between Manchester City and Arsenal essentially before the end of the season. But Arsenal also a lot of injuries to deal with at the moment, which Manchester City don't really have. And having lost out in the semis, it means that they're not going to be guaranteed to back, be back in there. But what they're sort of, the sport, aside from the sort of on-field like qualification issue here Manchester United Manchester City and Chelsea could be the three teams in the Champions League next year they should be looking at what Arsenal have done and saying how can we do that Chelsea got deep in this competition as well and weren't getting quite the same levels of uh, of crowd as Arsenal were Manchester United will probably have their first ever go at the Women's Champions League next year so they need to be looking at what can we take away from what they did and use that to try and yeah, create their own strategy around filling probably Old Trafford, or it should be Old Trafford if they're going to be really serious about this. Arsenal's such an interesting case because of the fact that they might not get the chance to do this again for another season, which also segues me quite nicely into the next subject. This is a, a club that dominates airtime everywhere, but I still think that, I mean, the women's team will be a part of the considerations for whoever owns Manchester United next season. And as of right now, that's still kind of quite up in the air but we did receive the third round of bidders for Manchester United on Friday and there were some interesting developments in that area so emerged that Sheikh Jassim the uh, Qatari backed bid for United he's bid for full control of Manchester United but uh, Sir Jim Ratcliffe who seems to be the only other bidder seeking to take over a majority share of the club actually his bid despite being for a smaller percentage of shares valued the club at a higher mark and then there were also minority bids from a number of investment firms i think when we come to talking about bids for football clubs and how much they're worth and is it going to be five billion is it going to be six billion it doesn't really matter but i think what is interesting here is the dynamics around the fan base and that's not always a massive business consideration and it's probably overlooked more times than it should be but there were some very interesting developments at Old Draft this weekend with fans demanding a full sale only, essentially meaning that the fans really want the Qatari bid because it means that the Glazer are out of the club. So my question for you, Sam, is do you think that it's sort of a damning statement on the Glazers that at this point in the process, the fans are so sort of sick of them and want to them so much that they would rather have a state-backed bid from Qatar than a local businessman who's seemingly made pretty good and uh, wants to buy up the local team. Yeah, I mean, it's been pretty clear from not just Saturday when we saw United protests at 
Old Trafford before and after the game against Villa, but you know, for years in the build-up to this, that United fans want the Glazers out, and I think that means even if you know in any potential sale, they don't want them staying on in any sort of capacity. But it has sort of felt like from the very start of this, there's never been a particularly attractive winner to this race. It's a strange one. It's kind of almost a, a damning indictment on the Glazers in the sense that perhaps they thought in putting the club up for sale they'd be inundated with serious offers for you know let's face it one of if not the biggest brand in sport you should realistically have a huge queue of potential suitors trying to buy the club off you but the fact that it is has come down to this and that you have you know on the one hand some a guy who has one of has a reputation as one of britain's worst polluters and on the other you have a bid from a qatari businessman purportedly a privately funded bid but then you know you can never tell how far detached some of these some of these bids are from sort of state backing the fact that this come down to that just perhaps speaks to how far united stock has fallen under under the glazers ownership which is why i think you know given what we've seen with this latest round of bids i think it's sort of almost understandable why jaseem's bid has become the most favored among the united fan base because you know they ultimately see the glazers as the root cause of the way the club has stagnated over the last decade or so you know the fact that they have been so poor on the pitch there's been there's been investment in players but there's been no real coherent strategy the stadium is very very run down the surrounding facilities just aren't up to scratch of what you would expect a club that generates the revenue that manchester united do it's not up to the standards that you'd expect of that so i'd imagine that any bid that sees the glazers stay on in any capacity is an absolute no-go for the united fan base not least because you know the fact that if the glazers were to stay on in a minority capacity it essentially allows them to fade even further into the background even in this controlling ownership they've been pretty distant figures appearing at matches sort of once or twice a season it's almost a really it's, a, it's to be honest it's a pretty attractive way for them to stay involved keep eking money out of the club and then potentially profit further down the line from any improvements that a new owner does make whether that's Ratcliffe or whoever else it may be you know if another owner were to come in improve the infrastructure of the club improve the facilities improve the stadium contribute to an uptick in fortunes on the pitch they win a premier league for example get have sustained success in the champions league year after year the value of manchester united is only going to shoot back up and if the glazers are still on board in a minority capacity they're going to eventually be able to sell those shares at an improved cost and sort of piggyback off the back of that success so you can entirely see it from a united perspective why they've kind of turned on the ratcliffe bid now given that it has emerged that it would mean the glazers staying involved and i think it's quite interesting jaseem's bid as well he's approached it a little bit in the way that Todd Bowley did in buying Chelsea so he's kind of offered a certain amount of money to purchase the shares this is the latest reporting I should say but then also committed a kind of or ring fence sort of an additional one billion pounds to spend on improving the stadium training ground transfers etc I guess there's a strategy there in terms of identifying the things at the club that do need improvement and also just you know the, the most important thing being that it is for full controlling ownership of the club, the Glazers leaving, which I think is what the United fans have wanted all along, irrespective of who the who the owner that comes in is. I think as soon as it emerged that the Glazers were leaving, I think a lot of United fans immediately showed their stripes and that they weren't particularly too fussed about who it was that was going to be replacing them as long as they were out of the club. So yeah, a pretty damning indictment, I'd say. But 
you could make comparisons to Newcastle in a way, couldn't you? When Mike Ashley left, the Newcastle fans, well, the majority, I should say, of Newcastle fans had very few concerns about who was coming in to replace him. Things had just got so bad in their eyes under that ownership that as long as he was out, then it was a positive. And I think the same sort of circumstances have started to emerge here with United. I think you're right. But also, I think there's certainly an element of football sport now, and maybe this is just me projecting how I feel about things onto onto how I think things should go. And actually, maybe the vocal minority or a, at least a vocal portion of the fans actually don't really care where the money comes from. They just want the money because they know what the money brings. And like Newcastle fans can get really excited about the fact that they're backed by the Saudi BOF because they know that means they've got unlimited funding and they've looked at what happened to Man City and been like, we want a bit of that. If it means that you get some local regeneration out of it, I mean, we've seen that with what's happened with Man City, like their investment in the Etihad campus all right, there's definitely negatives to it. They've been allowed to profit from some very favorable deals in terms of land, in terms of even sort of planning regulation from the local council. But there has been additional things that have gone into it aside from just buying success in the field. Manchester United fans have probably seen what's happening over on the blue side of Manchester and think, yeah, actually, we want that. We don't want the guy who is going to come in and run this a bit more like a business, looking at the P&L, looking at how do we do this in the most efficient manner, perhaps not putting privileging that investment in the stadium and especially when that comes with a deal which is structured in a way which leaves the people that they hate the most aka the glazers still with as you said a chance of not just having a say in manchester united but also profiting from any changes that do come about as a result of their own exit so i can completely understand where the fans are coming from it is a terrible indictment of like what the glazers have done to one of the best brands in global sport but also, I guess it kind of says where football club valuations are at and who can actually afford to buy them and who wants to. So Jim Ratcliffe is always clearly at a stage of his life where he is investing in things that he wants to kind of get the most out of and enjoy. He's bought several football clubs. He's invested in uh, Ineos, via, via Ineos's petrochemicals company. He's invested in Formula One. He's invested in cycling. And now he's got the chance to potentially invest in a Premier League club. But he's not a state-backed sovereign wealth fund, so he hasn't got those unlimited resources. He is just a billionaire, but that's where we're at. We're at the stage where it's billionaires and state-backed wealth funds that can buy these kind of mega properties. That is potentially a problem because you you leave yourself open to all sorts of questions about influence and um, about the say of supporters and what should be community assets. For me, anyway, it's quite sad, but also strangely inevitable. Not an issue for us, though, Tom, with our locally run clubs at Palace and Brighton. But you're right, I think it's a sad dynamic, but I think fans are just so much more aware of it now. Like, it's it's been really interesting to see the evolution over the past. So, I guess maybe it was, maybe Newcastle was the catalyst for it. But I think even when City's takeover went through and then the PSG takeover, the success that follows, no one really put two and two together quite in the same way that they do now mm. i think fans are just so much more privy to the fact that you know if you do want to compete at that top level you do need a country backing you now like you, it's that's the depressing fact of the matter like you know otherwise the best you can really hope for is probably a situation like brighton where you do have this really impressive data-driven approach that is the envy of a lot of people but still even with that there's a bit of a ceiling you get to a point where 
ultimately you have to sell your best players to those teams that are backed by state-funded entities um etc etc so yeah it's kind of it does feel like a lot of the romance is being sapped out of football whenever one of especially when one of these takeover sagas is going on because it's the usual suspects let's say being linked every single time and you know it's they're not particularly interesting usual suspects either they're the same ones over and over again and you wouldn't really want to root for any of them particularly in any of these takeover sagas i don't think no which is kind of the position that a lot of football fans find themselves in and that they're probably rooting for people that they perhaps wouldn't have wanted to a few years ago but you know people want their teams to win so that's what it comes down to yeah it's often picking from the least worst option in that similar field actually i think it brings us quite kind of nicely into talking about the hundred now the reason why there are sort of parallels is that there's been some recent report of in, of saudi interest unsurprisingly in partnering with the ipl the t20 bayamoth which is essentially taken over the running of cricket and now sort of after that reports have emerged that hundred which is the sort of ecb's answer to how do you tackle the problem of the IPL and how do you create a, a viable cricketing product in 2023? It's considering abandoning the sort of unique thing about itself, which is that it's 100 balls. It doesn't look anything like T20 cricket. It doesn't look anything like one-day cricket. It's it's kind of its own thing. But there's now reports that it's going to be pivoted towards being a T20 competition. So essentially, it would just be a, a more glamorous, glitzy version of the existing blast. Is this a bit of a, I mean, uh, we should say that the ECB have pushed back against the suggestions that it's going to be changing the format of the 100. Reports were, I think this is a, a Daily Mail report from last week, that this might happen in, like, say, 2025. It would only affect the men's competition and there would be some change to the structure of the franchises or the entrance to that competition in a way that it expanded T20 down below the main 18 professional counties and into the semi-pro minor counties as well. Now, none of those details are particularly fleshed out, but I do think this is where it's going to head. And interestingly enough, our boss, Nick, said in his uh, predictions for the next 10 years of sport at last week's Sports Bay Live event that this is what he thought was going to happen with the 100. I think after the first series of the 100, we thought it was on a pretty good track. The numbers were all pretty good. The viewership for the second series wasn't quite as strong. In terms of what's come at play here and what's changed, is this a bit of an admission of failure at the ECB or is this simply a kind of a change in thinking at the top? I don't know if it's an admission of failure. I think it's kind of a, it's a sort of almost a case of like, if you can't beat them, join them in a way, like, or, or risk getting left behind. There is part of me that thinks, you know, surely they should have seen something like this coming. Because I, I remember uh, the ECB's former chief executive, Tom Harrison, who was, you know, one of the main architects of the hundreds, played a big part in getting it up and running before he left. I think it was last year, was he left or the year before? But he said during, um, sports pro live i think it was a virtual sports pro live actually that we held during the pandemic that he essentially expected the 100 ball format to be adopted around the world which seemed like pretty fanciful back then and seems even more so now you know part of cricket's appeal and one of the things that holds it back is how many formats it has so to throw another format into the mix always felt like it was going to be a big challenge to get that up and running and sort of widely adopted so I wouldn't say it's been, I certainly wouldn't say it's been a failure. As you said, you alluded to the viewership figures. It's been pretty well attended. As far as I can tell, you know, you've had private equity companies interested in investing in it. It's provided an opportunity to put women's cricket on the same stage as the men's. But I think it just still sort of sits as a bit of an anomaly in the cricket calendar. 
and I think like it just goes back to you mentioned the IPL there it just always felt like the 100 was the ECB's attempt to create its own version of the IPL without wanting to create its own version of the IPL in a weird way without wanting to just be like this is an exact copycat which is not quite what we've seen in like other countries but we've seen other franchise competitions pop up around the world and they have succeeded because you know people like 2020 players like playing in these tournaments they get paid better and the t20 format is one that a lot of people are familiar with now and the problem is that like even when the 100 was launched there were already t20 franchise competitions around the world there weren't other 100 ball competitions around the world you had the bbl in australia the caribbean premier league and now even just a few years on you have tournaments in pakistan the uae the south africa 2020 league made its debut this year major league cricket in the us is going to launch soon and then on top of that you have ipl franchises buying teams in these leagues so you can quickly see where this is all going and that there's probably going to be a scenario in the not too distant future where you're going to have seven eight nine ipl style tournaments each year under the same sort of team names and you know taking place in different countries and like what place is there for the hundred in that environment right it kind of just becomes this sort of sore thumb that sticks out in that cricketing calendar and it just becomes a bit of an irrelevance really i think it would be the 100 ball competition in amongst a sea of 2020 competitions which feature the best players get the biggest crowds have kind of really really good event organizers in these ipl franchises running them and obviously those t20 tournaments will have the biggest money behind them so it just doesn't i just don't think it creates a very good environment in which the hundred can flourish unless it does change something unless it does become part of that kind of whatever that sort of ecosystem is unless it becomes part of it and i can't see it continuing to thrive so i can see exactly why there are these conversations reportedly happening because otherwise i just think it will get left behind i don't know if you agree but that's just kind of the way it's been playing out i think over the past sort of few months the last year or so no i completely agree I, I think as well if you're going to make the change make it now what i think works with the 100 and it has in its favor still is that it's not tied to the counties that is one of the drawbacks of the t20 blast is there's probably just too many teams in it clearly these competitions work better when there's a smaller focused amount of teams around which to build them it makes the tournament shorter it means that you can get the players in for the full windows so if there is a time to change them it is probably now and you're right you don't want to be left with a sore thumb i think it's not really the surprise as well that the, this is kind of being briefed out and we should say this is being briefed out and nothing official has come out but richard thompson and richard gould the richards who have taken over as the respective chair and chief executive of the ecb were noted skeptics of the 100 ball format before joining so it's not a surprising development i don't think that we're seeing shortly after they've got their feet under the desk that they want to change this into something that's a little bit more familiar to the rest of the the, the cricketing landscape and if they did it right there's no reason why a uk ecb backed 2020 franchise competition couldn't work like it, there's no reason why it couldn't be one of the top competitions in the world it's got a much bigger market audience it's done really well in terms of getting in younger fan bases with 100 already you've got that brand to work with you've got big name players that are already based here ability to attract big name players i think the thing is making sure that the financial package is right because i think that's one of the problems with the 100 is that players aren't particularly fussed about playing in it because actually it's not as rewarding as playing in the ipl 
let's take a contrast with the Women's Premier League, the new Indian-based T20 Women's franchise competition. The amount that the English players are going to get to go and play in that is way higher than they get to playing in the 100. And the 100, as a women's competition, has been really successful, way more successful than anything, any, any predecessor. So, yeah, I think if they're going to make the change, now's the time. It makes sense to do it. And they can kind of look back at it and go, all right, well, it was an interesting thing to do. And what we've done here, there are some good points that we can learn from. And it's a nice line in the sand in terms of getting past the the problem of the, the counties, if you will, the existing structure. But we can we can build on it from here. Yeah, I think that's where they should go. We'll probably see a bit of dragging of heels from certain parties involved, I should think. But not least when it comes to the kind of the pre-agreed broadcast contracts with Sky and the BBC, for example. But I think if you're able to placate them by essentially saying, look, you're going to get the same or similar product with the same level of investment from us, it's just not going to be this new format, which people are still even learning. What do you think they'll call it, Tom? I'm yeah I'm I'm no marketing guru the 120 I don't want to put my neck on the line too much for this but um could you even really go far too far wrong with the UK Premier League probably not <laughs> it's not the most original but it does what it says on the tin the UPL exactly <laughs> all right a couple of other quick things I think we should hit on before we before we wrap up this week's show one that kind of came in as we're talking on Tuesday morning is friend of the podcast, uh, Gianni Infantino. To be fair to Gianni, I spent a lot of time bashing him usually on this, but in this case, I think there's thought behind his comments. Basically, he's threatening to black out the Women's World Cup in certain countries after FIFA received what he describes as unacceptable offers for the media rights to the tournament. Speaking at a WTO event in Geneva, he described some of the local offers as a slap in the face for all of the players and women worldwide. Yeah, never lacking pomposity, Gianni Infantino. But do you think this is the right time and the right thing to be doing for the FIFA president to be taking a stand about the, some of the, the low-ball offers he's getting for the uh, broadcast rights for this tournament? I mean, I really hope he doesn't black out the tournament because the last thing that women's football needs is to be deprived of reach on the biggest stage of all. This line has emerged a few times over the past year, hasn't it, during the sales process for this tournament? And I think a lot of his ire has been kind of directed towards the European broadcasters. But I think that just kind of, I don't think it's that the broadcasters don't respect what the Women's World Cup is and the audience that it's going to get and the value in it. I think it just kind of speaks to, I think, well, I think part of it speaks to the fact that one issue with this tournament being in Australia and New Zealand is that a lot of the games are going to be taking place in the middle of the night for a lot of markets. So if you're a pay TV broadcaster, for example, in one of the European territories, then you're probably not going to be getting the same kind of advertising revenue from games that are being broadcast in the middle of the night and aren't being watched by a lot of people, which means that the money that you're going to be able to offer for those rights isn't going to be as high as as a tournament where the game is taking place in prime time, which basically leaves, obviously, the public service broadcasters on the other side of that. And as we all know, public service broadcasters aren't able to offer as big a money. So I don't know if Infantino is taking a dig at them, but I think it is challenging market conditions to be selling these rights anyway. And Infantino's sort of, I guess Infantino's own play here is to sort of air the laundry in public and kind of try to create this sort of 
I guess maybe a bit of a public backlash demanding that the broadcasters do pay more. Um, so that could be sort of part of the motivation behind what he's saying. I mean, I guess another option, they have FIFA Plus now. If he doesn't think the offers are high enough, then what better test case for FIFA Plus than to broadcast some of the games in there and see what kind of advertising revenues they can eke out from doing it that way. But they are sort of loaded comments, I guess, aren't they, in what he's doing. He is trying to sort of build some sort of momentum and a bit of backlash. And I'm not sort of sat here saying that the rights to the Women's World Cup shouldn't be getting significant offers because you know it is the flagship international women's football tournament in the same way that the men's is and should be treated as such but i suppose it was always going to be a challenge given where the tournament is taking place there's a few things i'd like to kind of come back on there i don't think for example there'd be any problems if this tournament was a men's world cup being hosted in australia and new zealand i don't think you'd be seeing a sort of shortfall from the bids from broadcasters in that people will stay up to watch those. And actually, I think people will probably stay up to watch these in Europe too. And in that respect, I think Infantino is right to call this out and to right to kind of use shame as a bit to drive the market. Because he knows as well that there needs to be a point in which we start saying, look, you need to value this at the same rate that you do value the men's tournament. It's going to get big numbers. It might not be the biggest numbers because in the middle of the night, but people still watch the 2002 World Cup in Japan and Korea, despite the fact that was on very very different time zone to to europe and broadcasters still bid the same and they bid the market rate for that too i feel like i'm on team gianni with that bit the fifa plus thing i'm interested in i don't think for a second that he thinks that or anyone at fifa thinks that like that's the first option or that this is actually secretly that they want to do this they want to back the broadcasting to a position where they can go direct to consumer with the whole tournament but at the same time they have that as a kind of thing in their back pocket that they can fall back on so like he can talk about a blackout but it wouldn't be a blackout because it, they would be able to put it on on fifa plus there are some shortfalls with fifa plus uh, fifa plus doesn't have great distribution on smart tvs which would be a problem i think for watching football and uh, not a lot of people are going to want to link their phones or their other devices to their tv in the same way as they would like to just have a fifa plus app on their smart tvs but again that's something that can be fixed you'd think anyway pretty easily before the tournament I'm sort of interested to how it's kind of reached this point. I mean, we're less than 100 days away from the tournament now. As you said, the sort of the different motivations behind pay TV and behind free to air, they've kind of got to be taken into consideration. But from FIFA's position, you've got to admit this is a little bit of a failure on your behalf to reach this point where you've still got not got your key broadcast deals set in. Because in failing to do that, broadcasters and the media companies behind them can't then build those marketing campaigns to, around building up the audiences for that tournament if they've got if there's a lack of security in what they're doing and they don't know you can't promote something you don't know you have and that could be an issue for the, for the tournament you really hope it doesn't have a hangover and that in taking in taking the stance that they haven't shot the golden goose at this stage i think it's also interesting this is obviously the first time i believe that they're selling the rights to the women's world cup separately from the men's so it's sort of a, it's an interesting not experiment but i guess it's the first time that they've had to do this and put a value on it so it'd be interesting to know how they valued it and i guess how that differs to how the broadcasters have valued it as well because like what's the science there you know is it simply a case of this is what we're now receiving for the men's this is the difference or this is what we're paying for the men's as well in the broadcaster's case this is the difference between that that's what we're going to offer or in fifa's case i guess maybe it's more a sense now where they're seeing right we have these two really premium separate packages that we're selling we want to get as close to what we're getting for the men's for the women they're just kind of i don't know it just obviously seems that 
they're pretty far apart in in their valuations at the moment yeah it'll be interesting to see how it plays out because you know the destination in the uk is probably going to be a public service broadcaster you would imagine but again i just go back to that point that public service broadcasters typically have a much more limited pool that they're able to spend so yeah we'll see what happens it will be interesting to watch and i'm sure infantino won't be the last we hear from him on it no and um i actually hope for the sake of the tournament that those deals kind of get done fairly soon so that we can get that big push the women's tournament deserves to have and we don't see a loss in momentum caused by the market behind what's actually something that's a little bit more important than who makes the most money here i think interesting place to lead the conversation for today's podcast given where we started it with the record attendances for live women's sport and then the challenge of making sure that people pay for it. Sam Carp, thank you very much for your time today. Really appreciate you coming on. Uh, cheers, Tom. Thanks for having me back. Uh, appreciate that you and George have formed a bit of a Harlan de Bruyne partnership, but hopefully I've filled the Julian Alvarez role adequately today. More than adequately, my friend. More than adequately. We'll be back next week. Hopefully we'll have George on the show too. Cheers, guys. Goodbye. Goodbye.